This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hello and welcome to Business Breakdowns. I'm your host, Jesse Pucci. Today we will be diving into Chipotle, the fast casual food chain known for its big and fast burritos. It was started in 1993 by Steve Ells, an entrepreneur who is actually a classically trained chef and dreamed of opening a fine dining restaurant. He used Chipotle to earn cash for that dream, but then the well-known chain took off and made Tex-Mex fast casual an American staple. Over the past two decades, Chipotle has expanded nationwide to over 2,000 owned and operated stores. Its significant growth is tied to its simple restaurant decor and efficient operations. Nevertheless, the beloved fast casual chain was plagued with a series of foodborne illnesses from 2015 to 2018. Since then, the chain has been adapting rapidly to regain the trust of customers nationwide. In this business breakdown, we discuss Chipotle's origin stories, its hyper growth, its focus on simplicity, and its ability to innovate. We'll also go into details around how they navigated COVID and their national food safety outbreaks. To help me break down Chipotle, I'm joined by Zach Fuss, an investor at Continental Grain and an expert on all things food and restaurant related. Please enjoy this business breakdown. So let's jump right in here with Chipotle. Just for those who don't know, what is Chipotle? Chipotle is a fast, casual Mexican food concept. It does about $6 billion in sales across 2,800 restaurants about $2.2 million in in revenue per store. Recognized for introducing the assembly-like process to food. So any Chipotle customer is familiar with the process. You go into the store in the restaurant, you move down the line, selecting a base, add-ons like beans and salsa. This inevitably spurred a series of competitors along the Chipotle of X, very much like tech companies are considered the Uber of X today. The company sports a, a market cap in excess of $40 billion. So it's worth, by the public markets, a little under $14 million per store. It's led by the former CEO of Taco Bell, Brian Nickel, who joined the company in 2008, brought in under the support of an activist investor, Bill Ackman of, of Pershing Square, helped to transition the company through a food safety incident that set the company back a handful of years, but it's widely recognized as being best-in-class restaurant concept in the fast casual space. Just for a sense of scale, I guess 3,000 stores, 6 billion in revenue. How does that compare with things that have been around longer, McDonald's, Taco Bell, just to give a sense? So it's still a rather nascent concept in the scheme of restaurant competition. If you consider like a Starbucks, a McDonald's, a Domino's, those concepts globally do anywhere from 25,000 to 30,000 stores. And so if you consider that relative to something like Chipotle, that's 3,000. Another key difference in the Chipotle story is that It's a fully owned and operated model. Most of the global quick service restaurants referred to as QSRs are franchised, meaning that they rely upon independent operators to own and operate the actual underlying businesses. 
and then the corporations that we're familiar with, like a Yum Brands, which is the owner of Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC, or McDonald's, which only owns McDonald's. So if you were comparing the profit and loss statement of a McDonald's to that of a Chipotle, it's really an apples to oranges comparison. Before we go into all the details, let's take it back to when it was started. How did it start? What were the unique insights like any entrepreneurial business that the founder had that led to Chipotle becoming Chipotle? The company was founded in the front half of the 1990s by Steve Ells. He eventually brought the company public in 2006 and served as a CEO until late 2017. Today, he serves as the executive chairman of Chipotle, and he's kind of known as the grandfather of fast casual dining. So fast casual as a category is defined by self-service with a price point positioned above fast food. So your average ticket is in excess of, of $10. Els, interestingly, was a classically trained chef who went to culinary school. He opened the first Chipotle in Denver and 15 additional stores in the greater Denver area. He started the restaurant with an $85,000 loan from his father. And they figured if they could scrap around enough demand for 100 burritos a day, they could break even. But quickly, they were selling well over 1,000 burritos per day. So his original intention was to use the uh, cash flow from his first Chipotle store to open a fine dining restaurant, given his culinary background. But the business model was so strong that he refocused his efforts on building more Chipotles. He set up a model which was recognized for an open kitchen, using fresh ingredients with real cooking in the back, and a de facto assembly line in the front. So that allowed for customization and speed that's kind of become its own industry standard. Fast casual, I mean, if we go back to 1990s, that concept didn't exist. It was either fast food or probably a nice restaurant. How much of it was intentional from what you know about the business around some of those ideas versus they just kind of randomly came to be? So I think the way you should think about it, right, is if you have a restaurant, you're ultimately trying to generate the most sales in the square footage you're using and then run them as efficiently as possible. I think it was with intention and realizing either you can be a full service restaurant that's burdened with significant labor costs and a pretty significant footprint that burdens the P&L with incremental costs of real estate, or you could eliminate those costs and reinvest those savings into the food experience to deliver a pretty strong value proposition to the customer. And so there was some sort of inherent counterpositioning innate in their business model in that they were attacking a part of the market that didn't really have a significant national branded player. Taco Bell on the one end was clearly a, a quick service competitor. And on the high end, you had full service restaurants. But as we kind of alluded to, fast casual as a concept was quite new. The idea was that to your point, most restaurants were independent full service models or national fast food chains. You did have casual dining, which was a pretty significant player. So those are the likes of an Applebee's, a TJ Friday's, a Cheesecake Factory. But the way I think about it is you quadrant. You have low service to high service and low cost to high cost. The bottom left quadrant would be fast food like McDonald's or Burger King. And the top right would be fine dining. So something like a Carbone or a Del Frisco's. And below that, you'd have Chili's, Olive Garden, Cheesecake Factory. And Chipotle kind of carved out this casual dining niche that was followed by the likes of Sweetgreen, Diggin, Cava. Generally, as you move across the spectrum, you get higher unit volumes, but relatively lower margins. So you can get higher profit dollars, but a lower margin, which creates, given the revenue generated by these stores, a really healthy economic model. That was a concept in the 90s, as you mentioned. 
which of those themes have created or what's the unique parts of the business that exist today that have carried through since the founding of it? The assembly line like model, which defined Chipotle, has seen a lot of copycats, but the spirit of innovation kind of continues in the business. The way that I look at the landscape of national restaurant concepts today is a number of them are leaning into the digital experience and some of them are leaning into the service experience. Interestingly enough, Danny Meyer coined the term fine casual dining, which is something like a Shake Shack. So it's a little bit of a more elevated experience, but still have the ethos of that really strong value proposition to the customer. So you get a higher quality product at a lower price than you pay at a restaurant. The whole idea of it is how can you take the four walls of the business that you have today and produce as high quality of an experience for the customer at the lowest price possible. These types of businesses are relentlessly customer centric, but also incredibly focused on costs. The idea of sustainable food supply chain is incredibly important to someone like Chipotle. Their marketing boasts the fact that they only use 53 ingredients in their restaurant, all of which are recognizable to the customer. And the unit economics kind of speak for themselves and the success of the business. Let's just dive in around the unit economics. How would somebody understand, I guess, in more detail, the fine dining experience versus the low end or Chipotle's unit economics? When you talk about that, I'm curious to understand what other things play into the factor in particular for Chipotle. With any restaurant, the core economic model is dependent upon how much does it cost me to open the restaurant? What is the working capital need? So the inventory. Tables, chairs. Yep, exactly. What are the dollar profits that I can generate for that store? In any unit-based businesses, there's two ways to drive your returns on capital. Either you have really high margins or you have super high turnover on your inventory and your invested capital, or you have both. Chipotle is kind of one of those rare circumstances where you have a bit of both. And so if you look at it on a quantitative basis, opening a Chipotle costs the company anywhere from $800,000 to a million dollars. Most of their restaurants are leased, so they don't own the real estate. At their peak, restaurant level margins were 26%. So For every $100 of burritos sold, they kept $25 on the bottom line. And where do the other 75 go? It's pretty typical for a restaurant. So 25% of the cost was your cost of food and ingredients, another 25% for your labor costs, about 5% for your rent, and the rest between that and the bottom line would just be the general cost of running a restaurant, whether that's sanitation supplies, electricity, overhead, Of course, there's a burden cost up at corporate, but we're talking just about the four wall economics right now. How does that compare to like a high-end store gross margin? The gross margins are really not the secret sauce of this business. It's still relatively strong, but for most restaurants, you're looking at at anywhere from a 20 to 25% cost of ingredient. The real thing that really drives that is the mix. If you look at like a fine dining restaurant, they generally can have a really high margin on cost of goods because the alcohol mix is so high. So if you serve alcohol, which Chipotle does to have margaritas and and cervezas, you generally mark up alcohol anywhere from four to five times. So you're working with like an over 80% margin in some cases. So for that fine bottle of wine that you pay $100 for, it probably costs the restaurant $20. Chipotle doesn't have the benefit of a very strong alcohol mix. But what they do have is most of a burrito is rice and beans and a tortilla, which are relatively low cost items. The high cost is really attributable to the proteins, to the chicken, the pork. What you're saying is that essentially restaurants price somewhat linearly to the same gross margin. Taco Bell is five or six bucks, but their stuff's cheaper. 
Chipotle is a little more expensive, but they all be, essentially target the same rough gross profit profile. Of it. That's exactly right. And, and if you kind of think about the consumer experience at a Taco Bell, if you can walk out of a Taco Bell with a $3 burrito, it's a pretty good proposition considering the weight. But if you consider the quality of the ingredient at something like a Chipotle, you're getting a much higher quality item at a 8 to $10 price point, and they're doing a ton of sales. So if you consider a 25% profit margin on $2.4, $2.5 million in sales, you're looking at around $600,000 in EBITDA. And if you assume a base level of maintenance, CapEx, and taxes, $350,000 to $400,000 in cash flow, two to three-year payback period with, with really no debt financing, the unit economics at peak were absolutely fantastic. And it's focused on kind of minimal footprint, high throughput, speed, efficiency. They get really high margins as we spoke to. They leverage some of their fixed costs in their rent and their utilities, and they're maximizing their dollars generated per square foot. One of the secrets is front of house, you see the kitchen, you see the assembly line that you progress through as a customer, but they also have been generating more and more sales through their back of house, what they call the second make line. We'll spend a bunch of time on kind of the digital transformation of the business. But it's really important because every incremental order that comes through that back of house can fall through to the bottom line at a very high incremental margin. If you recall walking through New York City or Washington, D.C. or St. Louis in the 2014-2015 time period at lunchtime, saw a bunch of finance types lined up around the corner to get into a Chipotle. And if you consider the economics of that type of throughput, it was a really differentiated approach to the business, but drove incredible, incredible economics for them. In the restaurant business, how does that compare? Like, What is a really bad payback period? What's a really good one? If you kind of consider return on capital hurdles for most businesses, everyone's kind of solving towards a, a high teens to low 20s. At two to three year paybacks, you can get anywhere from 50 to 35% IRRs, which is incredible. Domino's and Chipotle at the unit level are best in class. But what's important about Chipotle is they do about two to three times the unit volumes of a Domino's. So the dollars that are being deployed relative to the dollar's return are just meaningfully higher, which is why it makes so much sense for them to own and operate the restaurants rather than franchise it out. Some of the burger concepts have a bit of a lower payback period, comparable top line. So McDonald's does two and a half million dollar AUVs. Burger King does a little bit under two, but the margin profiles are way lower. So a McDonald's restaurant may do in the low to mid teens. And for some of their burger competitors, a little bit lower, they can get really good paybacks. But given the margin profile, they're not quite as good as a Chipotle box. Goes back to the earlier question of their start, but what's underneath that? Is it because of the burrito? Like what makes that possible? It's a function of the process. While people love to talk about it and it's widely popularized, the way that they move people through the store is incredibly important. If you consider a McDonald's ordering experience or that of most fast food restaurants, you generally go to the counter, you order, and then you walk away and you wait. Chipotle has the benefit of moving you through the line as they're assembling your order. So by the time you order to the time you get to the counter, if you consider your customer experience, in some cases, it's, <laughs> it feels like it's 30 seconds to a minute and it may be just that. And so that throughput is incredibly important. And I think a big part of that is they've been innovating forever. They were kind of the first mover to fast casual. They realized that they needed to continue to invest and innovate in the business. And that means that they have more predictive ordering. They're able to know how much food they need when. They do a great job at having the food available for their customers when they want it. And it's about the continuity of that throughput. 
And because there's a limited number of selections that you can make, if you think about the customization opportunity, of course, there are tons of permutations, but if you consider base add-ons protein, it's not quite as many as a disparate menu that a typical fast food restaurant may have. If you consider that of a Taco Bell and you look and compare the menus, there's a ton, a ton of options that you may have. They also don't really engage much in, in limited time offerings in LTOs. If you consider the back of house of complexity that an LTO may cause for a business, it's just less repeatable and less scalable, and it causes a lot of issues. The last thing that's super important is they pay their employees and treat them incredibly well. And so if you reduce turnover, the restaurant managers kind of run as like a captain of the team. They're incentivized with equity. They're driving sales and efficiency through their business and kind of quarterbacking the whole thing. So the continuity of the workforce is incredibly important because every store is kind of run like its own little business. Whereas the turnover for a typical restaurant could be five to six X every year. So you're replacing the staff five times per year. Chipotle's are demonstrably better. And as a function, you have happy employees that understand what they're doing and work very efficiently. And all those things contribute to a better bottom line. Yeah. That last one reminds me a little bit of like Southwest Airlines and how they actually say the customer is not first, the employee is first. And if you put the employee first, they'll then likely put the customer first. Go back to the first point you made is there's something beautiful about what you see is what you get when it comes in. It's simple, it's focused. And then that focus, I believe, drives innovation. But when you're focused, you just have less variables and you can move them further along. Talk about that as it relates to this owned and operated concept versus franchising, because that seems like a huge departure from the norm in this industry. As I alluded to earlier, one of the key differences for a company like Chipotle relative to its competition is that it owns and operates its restaurants. It's not a franchisor, whereas McDonald's, Burger King, Domino's, Taco Bell, as we said, they own a few of their restaurants. And instead, they partner with independent business operators who own the P&L, but they don't control the experience from top to bottom. So that means that when McDonald's wants their franchisees to invest in their stores, they have to incent them to do so. That may be through some brand support. That may be through helping to finance some of the costs. But there's definitely a principal agent problem inherent in that business. So a great example of this in fast food is there's kind of a propensity for the fast food players to get overly promotional. Some of the analysts call this discount warism. If you kind of consider like dollar nugget promotions, dollar nuggets are not a particularly profitable business proposition. Hopefully through nugget sales, you're driving soda sales, which are incredibly high margin. But with that being said, if you kind of consider losing the economic incentives of the business, you're really just consider driving top line and you're less concerned with the actual bottom line of the business. And there's this amazing virtuous cycle when a business is focused on not just driving sales, but driving them profitably and investing in this capacity for suffering. There's no better example of a business that has a capacity to suffer than Chipotle. We'll kind of get into some of the issues that they had over the last couple of years, but it means that everyone's interests are aligned and that's incredibly important. And then beyond that, they can naturally leverage the learnings from all their restaurants. So if they have a restaurant in New York City that's doing five, $6 million in sales, what can they learn from that restaurant and transfer it to a restaurant in San Francisco or a restaurant in Scottsdale? And although franchise systems have similar shared learnings, the speed at which those things can be spread across their system is just slower than that in which a restaurant is owned by the corporate. What are the like variables or criteria if tomorrow you became a restaurant owner that you go, here's why I should franchise versus here's why I should continue to own it. 
So I'm not an operator, but I'll tell you what my investor hat would say. There is something to be said for being part of a broader global system that has immediate brand equity. And so the difficulty in standing up your own restaurant concept is that A, you don't have the benefit of scale and B, you don't have the brand equity inherent in the franchisee, franchise or business model. Many people don't know this, but Subway is actually the largest restaurant system by units in America. Everyone knows what a Subway is. It used to have really, really strong unit economics that have since become more challenged. But the reality is that you could stand up a Subway for a couple hundred thousand dollars and be in business in a couple months. Starting your own restaurant concept from scratch, it's no different than a technology company that needs to acquire customers. It's very expensive. You're likely not at scale within your first couple of years. Whereas for franchise models, that business has already been proven by others. So the unit economics, you kind of know what you're getting and it allows you to scale it quite quickly. And most franchisees don't just own one restaurant. They sign a development agreement with corporate. They open multiple restaurants. And before you know it, they have a couple million dollars in EBITDA and a really, really nice, healthy business. What about from the other side? So now we have Zach's chicken, a winning concept, like it works. Now you're Zach and someone say, you should franchise it the way McDonald's did. Or no, they go, you know what? You should go the Chipotle route. So I would say the thing that is of highest consideration is really that payback period. If you can get a strong payback on a high unit volume, the dollar economics are so strong to the owner that it wouldn't make sense to really sell the business. If you kind of consider the decision set there, what you're sacrificing may be speed to market. So if I franchise, there's 10 interested parties who are all developing restaurants at the same time. So we can open up hundreds of restaurants that's really, really healthy for me. But if I could go slower, but have really good dollar returns to myself, sometimes it makes sense to go a little bit slower, but own them all. And then the last caveat I would say is franchisees are really helpful in entering markets that you're not familiar with. If you're looking at the US market, it's somewhat homogenous. Most major metro areas are dealing with similar demographics and demand. But if I were to try to open up a restaurant in Latin America and not understand the culture, I didn't understand the way to do business down there. It may make sense to partner and to go into that market with someone who knows the market and take the restaurant concept and transfer it to that particular market. That's a good segue to talk about McDonald's. So in some ways, this seems like the anti-McDonald's, yet McDonald's was an early investor and I think did really well in the investment. I'm, I'm curious more from Chipotle's vantage point, why'd they take money from McDonald's? How did that relationship play out? A couple of years after the founding of the business, Steve took $350 million of growth capital for McDonald's. It provided him with the dollars that he needed to scale the concept. It provided him financing and the firepower to grow the concept to 500 stores. And it kind of goes towards what we were talking about in the franchisee franchisor debate. I need incremental capital in order to open up new units because a lot of restaurants may not open up at the scale and margin profile of my original restaurants. So you want to make sure that you have an equity cushion that provides you with the financing you may need in the event that you're burning cash. Opening up restaurants is a pretty significant upfront CapEx outlay. It's that million or so dollars. And he wanted to accelerate the growth. And if you look at a business like McDonald's, that's kind of what they're good at. They're good at scaling and developing restaurant concepts. You can borrow the manufacturing efficiency of a corporation like McDonald's and marry it with the unit economics and the brand ethos of a Chipotle, it sounded like a really good partnership. Essentially what happened is 
McDonald's didn't meddle much in Chipotle's operations. They did influence a strategy that resulted in some franchises, which no longer exist. But it was really just a minority investment. And as part of a portfolio repositioning, McDonald's disposed of some of its non-core brands. So they were actually the ones that took Chipotle public in 2006. At that point, they owned 90% of the business. I think part of it was Steve started this restaurant with one unit in Denver, Colorado, got to take some money off the table and perhaps didn't have the foresight to see that this would be a $40, $50 billion restaurant concept. And McDonald's completely exited the investment after the IPO. Today, that would be worth $35 billion. But to be fair, there's probably a fair amount of path dependence involved here in that I don't think that the restaurant could have probably gotten to where it was today should McDonald's still be the owner of the business. So I think they kind of left at a time that was appropriate for Chipotle to kind of set its own path and its differentiated strategy and go to market. The other question on the McDonald's, like when you think about either learnings that they took from Chipotle or the opposite, where they said, oh yeah, here you guys, no way, we're never going to do that. The focus on sustainable food is something that's core to Chipotle. If you consider McDonald's, the core proposition in that business is to provide you safe food at a low price and as much as possible. That's what the dollar menu is about. That's what a Big Mac is about. Chipotle takes a pretty different approach. As we had spoken to earlier, they only use 53 ingredients and they're well-recognized for avoiding the use of highly processed preservatives, thickening agents, food additives. They want you to look at the ingredients on the back of their label, which is really listed on their website and recognize everything that's on there. You know, the company famously stopped selling carnitas at some of its restaurants because it was forced to drop one of its pork vendors for not meeting its standards. That's just way different than what you'd expect of a McDonald's. They serve you incredibly safe food, but it doesn't have the freshness and the social considerations that Chipotle does. And it's probably an interesting segue in the focus on sustainable ingredients, unfortunately, led to some vulnerabilities in their supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go there. They've had a handful of challenges over the years. I'd love to go through the food health issues. What happened there? Why did it keep happening? Where does it stand today? In late 2015, the company kind of ran into its first major hurdle as a public company. It was a combination of an E. coli and a norovirus outbreak at their stores. And it ultimately resulted in a thousand people falling ill after eating at a Chipotle. This resulted in a fair amount of turbulence for the business's performance and its share price. I think from peak to trough, it lost about 70% of its market cap. It led to a situational opportunity where Bill Ackman's Pershing Square took a 10% stake in the business, which was a well over a billion dollar investment. Same store sales declined 30 to 40% from its peak. And so they had a lot of fixing that they had to do in the business. Ultimately, it resulted in the transition of Steve Ellis to executive chairman, and they brought in the new CEO. They moved the headquarters from Denver to Santa Monica just a ton of change. It happened at an interesting point in the restaurant business where people were starting to compete with Chipotle in that assembly line like concept, competition from the likes of Sweetgreen, Cava, Zoe's Kitchen, Noodles and Company, just a ton of people going after their market share. And they kind of had to look inward and, and rework their supply chain. That open kitchen model that was core to their strategy, unfortunately led them to some vulnerabilities in food safety. So they moved some things to a commissary model where they're doing more of the food prep outside of the restaurant to ensure that everything was either pasteurized or sanitized to avoid any particular bacterial exposures. They introduced sous vide for most of their meats. So rather than prepping raw meat in the kitchen, 
they take the raw meat and they cook it at a low temperature for an extended period of time. And it's just finished in the restaurant. So you eliminate a lot of the pathogens that are kind of inherent in dealing with raw ingredients. There are some compromises that had to be made in order to ensure safety in a way that may have slipped through the cracks. When you're a 100 to 200 unit concept, it's way easier to remain tight on all the safety standards. When you scale to 1,000 to 2,000 to 3,000 restaurants, it becomes incrementally harder. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, brand reputation is important for restaurants. When you lose the trust of your core customer, it can set you back a lot. And so at the beginning, we talked about that 25 to 26% store level margin, it plummeted into the single digits and has since recovered to the, the high teens, low 20s, but it's never gotten back to where it was. And I think some outsiders may say maybe the restaurants were too profitable. Maybe they weren't doing all the things that they had to do to ensure safety. And as a consumer, I think we don't think enough about the importance of food safety when it comes to where we eat, but there's a ton of cost and compliance associated with making sure that food is safe for consumption. And they certainly had to make a major investment in ensuring that. You mentioned that it led to an outside Pershing Square and making a big investment. Can you talk a little bit about why they made that investment, how that played out for both parties? It's been an immensely successful investment for Pershing. But with that being said, I think what they identified was a business that had incredible brand equity, really strong unit economics that was running into a temporary hurdle that required change. Candidly, it's not the first publicly traded restaurant company to have a food safety scandal. It's happened to KFC. It's happened to Jack in the Box. In most cases, they've recovered. The equities associated with those companies are at all-time highs and the unit volumes the same. It was an opportunistic opportunity to make a really big investment in a company that had best-in-class unit economics. And it was an asymmetric bet on the eventual recovery of those economics also, it was a founder-led business, and at some point, some businesses are well-positioned for a transition to an experienced outsider who has dealt with restaurants of this size and scale. So they helped to replace the management team while leaving the founder as part of the business. So the combination of the organizational changes and the transition away from putting the food safety scare behind them was a situational opportunity for which they capitalized upon and made many multiples on their money. But they also realized that the restaurant environment was changing and they encouraged the company to invest not just in their supply chain, but in their go-to-market strategy and lean heavily into the digital store experience. Pershing had an experience investing with Starbucks and they've kind of applied the Starbucks model to Chipotle. Yeah, let's talk about that. It sounds like Pershing Square is like a new, it's not quite activist, it's like collaborative activist investor where they kept the founder around. Talk about technologies. How have they been an innovator there in food service? An interesting way to look at it is to kind of point towards retail as the canary in the coal mine for the omni-channel transition for restaurants. So if you consider brick and mortar retail as something that was killed by e-commerce, and of course, there are many brick and mortar retailers that embrace digital and are doing exceptionally well, restaurants face similar straits. So they were a fast casual restaurant chain that dedicated itself to improving the customer experience with digital tech. And it's paid off extremely well. So to show you some of the results, during the pandemic, nearly 50% of their sales were facilitated via digital ordering. And those digital orders were growing like 200% year over year. And that means that all their orders were either ordered ahead of time via mobile. So the buy online, pick up in store concept, or via web browser, or 
what's referred to as an aggregator, like a DoorDash. They both deliver via DoorDash and they white label. So if you go through their app, ultimately it's delivered by DoorDash, but they don't pay the same fees because they compensate DoorDash for acquiring a customer on their behalf, as opposed to driving you to their same app. They leaned into their digital rewards program. So they have over 20 million registered users today, which is more than Starbucks, which is known as the leader in digital. And what does this all mean? Of course, it means a better customer experience, but it also helps the economics of the store. Because to the extent that you know who your customers are, you know their ordering behavior, you can personalize offers to them, you know which stores that they generally frequent, you know which days of the week, they have your payment information on file. Back to that original model, you mental model you had of 25% margins, two to three year payback, let's call it. What does a business that has 50% in digital ordering, how does that affect that economic model? It remains to be seen in many ways. The margin profile of their restaurants haven't quite recovered to the levels they were at before the food safety scandal. I think they're investing heavily today in the restaurant experience to make sure that this transition to digital ordering goes seamlessly. But over time, perhaps you have lower margins, so your bottom line may be higher, but your turns on capital will be better. Because to the extent that you don't need as much inventory, because let's say I know exactly what you're going to order when you're going to order it. If I have predictive inventory management and I can order less chicken from my store, I can order less lettuce, I can schedule labor more efficiently, I can do more in the back of house, I'm going to get higher dollar per square foot sales. Do you have a sense for what that looks like? I mean, I've always wondered that actually even looking at Starbucks, like I go there and I see more employees working and I'm like, oh, their sales have to be higher than they were, but making everyone wait in the line. It's tough to say. You can kind of see it on the returns and capital of a lot of these businesses, but I would say that it's tough to disaggregate the margin profile of digital orders, just given that the people that are investing heavily in it want to make sure that they acquire customers that have a really long lifetime value. Every business is kind of becoming, unfortunately, a CAC to LTV story, where if you have a better customer experience, you're likely going to come to the restaurant more. You're going to be a more loyal customer. And if you consider over a long period of time, if Jesse goes to Chipotle 10 times a year and they can help to incentivize you to go 15 times a year, the 50% increase in your annual visits over a 10-year lifespan is worth the lower margin. So I don't know the at the unit level, the incremental margins associated with digital. But what I can tell you is that the ability to know your customer is of the utmost importance for these guys. And the biggest thing that's really going to ultimately decide how profitable digital ordering is, is the ability to solve for delivery and for ghost kitchens. They're actually doing something pretty interesting at Chipotle. You can order quesadillas, but only via digital. So instead of interrupting the line, because if you consider a quesadilla versus a burrito, it takes a lot longer to prepare. They get people onto their digital flywheel by requiring, if you want to order one, you have to do it digitally. And that's just such a creative way through a go-to-market strategy that before restaurants were connected direct consumer, they were incapable of doing. So if you kind of extend that assumption years down the line, you can really think of a world where there's so many creative ways to kind of flex your muscle and kind of meet your customer wherever they want to be. And dark kitchens and ghost kitchens are another derivative of that. Ghost kitchens, for those who don't know, are when someone uses the kitchen or basically will just build straight through the back of the kitchen and deliver and ship food to people, branded or unbranded. So sometimes with Chipotle's brand, sometimes they might make it with another brand. So there's the couple of tech trends that were, you know, bigger trends that is that there's DoorDash, there's Uber Eats. I'm curious if there's more on that trend. 
I say the two primary forms of distribution, it's going to be, can I get closer to the customer or can I get my food delivered to the customer from a further location? And so the one thing on the aggregator side is important. It's how do I work with third-party delivery services? So to your point, a DoorDash or an Uber Eats. The other thing is subscription. There are not a lot of restaurants that have really made headways in subscription. You're sacrificing sometimes the economics in order to help try to build a bigger basket. So if I can get you into my store more often and I can get you to come to the store, that means that the ability to upsell you is higher. I haven't heard Chipotle doing anything like that yet, but perhaps they could. But the most interesting thing that they're trying is a dark kitchen. So to your point, a ghost kitchen is usually co-located with another concept. The idea is that you spread the real estate costs and centralize the procurement of inventory. But if you're a brand that has really strong equity with your customer base, there may have historically been designated market areas that weren't big enough for your concept. So they may think, hey, we'd love to open up a Chipotle, but unfortunately, we don't think we can do the requisite one and a half to $2 million in sales needed to make the economics work. But what if you can shrink that store by 60%? And what if you don't need street level real estate and you don't need it to be at a popular intersection, but instead it's in an industrial park and your rent is 10% of what it once was and you have a much smaller and more efficient unit. So let's just assume that you can save anywhere from eight to 10% of your costs all that incremental cost can be used to fund your delivery. And so the biggest value unlock is if you can acquire customers yourself and you don't have to spend significantly to go and get that customer. So it works really well for something that has a lot of organic interest, like a Chipotle. It's more difficult for Jack's Chicken Shop because no one's heard of it. And it's kind of that classic challenge that the OTAs had with the hotel operators. And it's going to be fascinating if the dark kitchen concept works and a lot of the large QSRs are trying it as well. While Chipotle is in an advantage position is they're not competing with their franchisees. So it's much more difficult for McDonald's to say, hey, I know that you have 10 restaurants in the suburbs of New York, but we're going to open up a dark kitchen and we're going to recognize all the economics from that. And so again, that principal agent problem becomes very difficult. Chipotle won't face that. Yeah. So we might see Chipotle on our DoorDash or Uber Eats app, but then go, well, I've never seen a Chipotle there before because it'll be some park that you've never been to 80% cheaper, but then a super profitable business. I mean, that seems like an insane shift in technology and the way the world is going to work. Yeah. It's that classic distribution over product problem. If you can distribute your brand efficiently and that you have organic demand and you can get to people quicker, which means they're going to be a more satisfied customer you're ultimately going to win. Increasing returns to scale plays out in both bits and atoms. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of the burrito and sort of Mexican food, and then talk about other types of food that have tried the same format. First, let's start with Qdoba. My college campus, Qdoba, was where we went. There was no Chipotle, but it seems like Chipotle really won in a relatively similar business concept. We've talked about simplicity of the ingredients and that set. We've talked about some other concepts. So what do you think are the few reasons that it won in, in its own cuisine type. Something that was interesting about Qdoba in particular is it was being grown under a house of brands. So Jack in the Box owned Jack in the Box and Qdoba. Jack in the Box, for people not familiar with the concept, is a lower cost burger joint, really. It competes with McDonald's and Burger King that are lower price point. I think they even have dollar tacos, so they have a really wide and disparate menu. What you find in most multi-concept restaurants is they can be economically very successful, but the sustained success of the business is just 
less of that than a focused restaurant concept. So if you consider the best in class concepts, generally they're singular. Starbucks, Domino's, McDonald's, Chipotle. They don't have second and third brands that they're managing under the same umbrella. Apollo has acquired Cadoba from Jack in the Box, but it is an interesting aside in that Chipotle actually trialed a couple of other brand concepts in the similar vein to that of Chipotle. They had Shop House Southeast Kitchen, which was an Asian concept. They had Pizzeria Locale, which is a pizza concept. They had Tasty Made, which was a burger joint. And if you kind of look across the restaurant universe, Fast Casual Pizza actually has found some success. So you may be familiar with Blaze, which is a concept that LeBron is heavily invested in, has been growing incredibly well. You can say that Tasty Made is somewhat similar to a Shake Shack, perhaps at a little bit of a lower price point. Not a ton of success on Fast Casual Asian, although Panda Express is growing incredibly well. So they've tried. For whatever reason, having a singular focus is incredibly important. And I think once you kind of crack the economic model of the business and you grow with it, there are scale advantages, right? Because then as you get to a certain number, you can leverage national media spend. You know better than all in working with social to the extent that you are a higher quality bidder for keywords. You have an inherent advantage. So there are things that lead to the success of larger brands as they scale that make it more difficult for upstarts. And then you compound that with the focus of a brand that has multiple conflicting competitive concepts and just makes it really difficult to compete. And then the last thing I'd say about Qdoba in particular, they were growing after a slightly different demographic. Qdoba was a little bit of a lower price point. They were focused on really unhealthy ingredients. And there was kind of a classic example with Chipotle when they brought their queso product to market. So for years, queso was the most requested item. And they tried to do it in an organic and sustainable way. But unfortunately, making a really creamy cheese product without using emulsifiers and add ingredients is quite difficult. And if you juxtapose that to the queso at Chipotle, the original product was grainy. It was gloppy. It did not sell well. And I think they've since improved the product and it's done extremely well. But if you think about a brand that's focused on natural ingredients, things like that just make it difficult to compete. It sounds like the lesson there... Even Chipotle, with all of its advantages of the model and the learnings and the economics, couldn't make other cuisine concept work, similar to how Jack in the Box couldn't make Qdoba work. But Blaze does exist. So it's almost just like the classic sort of stay focused. What you know best will work well. It's a great segue to the last part of this. Zach, you talked about how dark kitchens enable essentially to serve a smaller market or a market that you might not otherwise be able to open a storefront in in a commercial real estate area. What's the sense of how big that could be for Chipotle and others? In my head, I imagine every small town now could have a Chipotle technically or something along those lines. Is there some way to think about that? So it's tough to really extrapolate as to how big it can be. What I will say is today, most concepts have one to a handful of dark kitchens. So we're really, really in the early days of what it could potentially become. I've said in past discussions with Patrick that Domino's was the original ghost kitchen. As a context, Domino's has 6,000 units in the US. Chipotle has somewhere around 2,200. I think the biggest thing that Chipotle is going to transition to are what they call Chipotlanes, which is their drive-through offering. So maybe that can help bridge the gap in some ways to going from a dark kitchen concept to one where at least they're driving more traffic through their current store base. Apparently, Americans aren't very fond of getting out of their cars, but that's also kind of a fledgling opportunity that they're going after. So I would say 
there's no reason to believe that they can't go after similar markets to something like a Domino's, which means that there's the opportunity for thousands of units, but it remains to be seen uh, how successful of uh, an effort it's going to be. Cool. We're getting here towards the end. I'd love to talk about lessons for builders and then separately lessons for investors. So let's start with, from your perspective, what are the lessons for builders and entrepreneurs in the Chipotle story? As an investor that's had the opportunity to meet with entrepreneurs in the past, I think it's important to realize that Chipotle started as an idea. It was Steve L's classically trained chef who wanted to provide high quality, cheap food that seemed like an insurmountable task at the time, but it was a concept that he believed heavily in. And he's lucky in that the first restaurant was incredibly successful. But it also goes to show that if you can demonstrate the unit economics of your business, technologists call it product market fit, but it's comparable in restaurants, there's an immense opportunity that comes out of something that's replicable. So you build it once and then you scale it multiple times. That's something that I think anybody can take away from this story. Yeah, I love that. And what about for the investors out there? And for investors, it's kind of a relentless focus on unit economics. It's no different than that as an entrepreneur, but you need to help kind of see what the ultimate vision is for the business and how scalable it is. And I think that if you kind of look at the early success of something like a Chipotle and how powerful that economic model was, someone like a Bill Ackman who stepped in realized that the brand equity was incredibly successful. And sometimes when a business that has a really loyal customer base kind of falls in hard times, it's opportune to take a contrarian view and make a strong bet on a founder-led business that just needs a little bit of help. All right, Zach. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this business breakdown of Chipotle with Zach Fuss. As an entrepreneur myself, what really resonated with me is the power of simplicity and how that simplicity drives innovation. In a Chipotle restaurant, you can order one type of food, a burrito, and then you enter a line where you can see all the ingredients and choose them as you go. This simple approach leads to not only a better customer experience, but also more customers serve per hour, which means more revenue and profits for Chipotle. I'm struck by how powerful this is for Chipotle and how it's a real innovation and an innovation that doesn't need any technology. And this innovation built an entirely new restaurant category. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 